לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamed in Highland Park, New Jersey, at the Highland Park Conservative Public Congregation on Shabbat. Joining me, my good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler. How you doing, Barry? And Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, uh, Long Island and New York City, respectively. We are studying an amazing Parsha, an amazing Parsha, Parsha Say. Just before we begin, we have to indicate the statistics, the Parsha stats. There are 110 verses in this Parsha. There are 74 mitzvot in this Parsha. There are 5,856 letters in this Parsha, 1,582 Hebrew words and 213 lines in a Torah scroll. But the one salient statistic is 74 mitzvot in 110 verses. That is a mitzvah density of... 67.3%. 67.3%. What we're saying is this is the most mitzvah-dense Parsha in the Torah, and let's get started with it. We are starting with a set of three different areas of mitzvot that have to do with going into war. When you take the field against your enemies, what happens? What happens in this first instance what is the Torah trying to do? And from that, we'll probably get into a whole conversation about the meaning of these mitzvot, perhaps the underpinning of the mitzvot, and, and what are the mitzvot trying to accomplish? Barry Chesler, tell us what this first mitzvah is about. So we have the captive wife, a man on the battlefield, spies a woman of the enemy nation who he is attracted to, and he wants to marry her. He has to bring her home. Um cut her hair, let her nails grow, allow her a month to mourn her parents, and then he is able to marry her. And should he decide that at some point he no longer wishes her, whether before or after the marriage, he cannot sell her as a slave, but he must free her. So this this obviously sounds very difficult for a modern audience, a modern sensibility. But what do you think it was trying to, to accomplish? This so I think this is the first of three related mitzvot. The second one has to do with a man with two wives who has a, let us call her a hated wife and a more beloved wife, rings a bell with the patriarch Jacob. And he's not allowed to disinherit the firstborn of the hated wife in favor of a child of the loved wife. And then we have the Ben Sawyer Moret. And in all three of these cases, the Torah is coming to curb behavior of the individual in favor of restricting that behavior and having a community or a, a higher standard make the decision. So with the captive wife, I think what we find most disturbing is the fact that the woman seems to be mistreated by having her hair cut off and her nails cut. But I think that it actually is the Torah's way of forcing the the man to look at this woman as a woman and not as a sexual object. 
And only then can he make a decision to marry her. So rather than allow the soldier on the field, and we know from even the modern day that battlefield rape is a real phenomenon that has no easy solution, that this is an attempt to restrict the man's behavior and elevate the, the relationship in some way. He's got a cooling off period of 30 days. There has to be a 30-day waiting period. And um, I mean, it says via Shvab Vitecha, she has to go back to her home or in your home. Uvachta et aviha vetima. She has to go into a forced state of mourning. You know, it, it's not so hard to see how it would be forced. She would be uh, completely traumatized by this event. And so you're you're saying he has to see her as a human being, not as an object. Jeremy, you want to kind of? Comment? Yeah. Well, this is this is. The uh, Rashi says, which I assume is is quoting some something in in Gemara uh, or Midrash, "Dibra Torah Keneged Yetzirah." Right? The Torah the Torah speaks to the human worst impulse, and and I firmly agree with Barry that this is uh, best seen as a uh, as a um, a reform at, rather than a you know legislation of the way things ought to be. We read it in the Torah; it's a mitzvah in the Torah. You, you, at some level, the Torah is saying, this is proper behavior. And you kind of want the Torah to say, no, this is terribly improper behavior. No battlefield rape. And instead, you know, in a, in a, in a world that we can't imagine, you know, the, the, there's a little bit of Game of Thrones style behavior here. Um, we can't imagine the brutality, you know, in, in the ancient world. But the Torah is saying, exactly as you, as you folks just said, um, the worst impulse of humanity is is best restrained and channeled into things like giving giving the the captive thirty days uh, uh, some time to mourn the fact that she has been wrenched from her people and and is is held by these other people um, and and if, if you if you shave her hair and let her fingernails grow long at so, at some level I think that the rabbis think that she will no longer be attractive to the man who took her and he will let her go. Um, but it, it is a kind of reform, e- even though you you would like the Torah to say, "Hey guys, don't do this at all. Don't 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 um, uh, let's not create an avenue by which you can do the less horrific." You you kind of want the Torah to say, "Don't don't do anything horrific. Don't do anything torturing." But in, instead, what we do have, I think, is is a piece of legislation that says people, men on the battlefield, can give can have their worst impulses just released. Don't do that. Restrain, restrain those most violent impulses. So the, the Torah then moves into the, the, the set of laws regarding a man with two wives. And, and Jeremy, as you spoke, I'm thinking there, there is a lot of narrative connected to, to these laws. In fact, one of the, the ways to approach law is to, to, to figure out what's the story here. And Barry, you alluded to it uh, because you know, the Torah certainly knows of polygamous uh, marriages, our patriarch, uh, Jacob was, uh, he had at least two wives that were real wives and two other wives. Uh, Abraham had more than one wife, but uh, actually, well, Sarah and Hagar, Hagar was a co-wife. Um, and so in each of these cases, and, and uh, uh, Elkanah, the, the father of uh, the prophet Shmuel has two wives, Hannah and Penina. In each one of these situations, uh, it, things don't, don't end up very well. I remember it was Joseph Tilishkin. We had him as a guest uh, uh, speaker. He's a member of your show, right? 
And, and uh, uh, he lives in my neighborhood, but he's not. Neighborhood. Right. So he's, he made the comment. He says, like, the Torah legislates on this and, and, and everywhere else. It, it basically says, look, it doesn't work out well. This is not the ideal. And, of course, it takes, you know, uh, a few centuries for Judaism to get to the ideal of monogamy. But, um, uh, and There's then, nothing else that should be said here, though, and that is that one of my teachers, uh, the late Stanley Kazin, Rabbi Stanley Kazin, one of our, our colleagues, suggested that there is law in the Torah that we have in Devarim, and then there's the narrative, and that's a countertext, but we shouldn't delude ourselves into thinking that the stories convey the actual happening. People went by the law. The firstborn got the extra portion, for example. And it's worth noting that with Samuel, Samuel was given what he got from his mother, not from his father. We never hear anything about what Elkanah says about Shmuel. I don't think he speaks to Samuel in the book. So I, w- I want to ask about, about this, um, because it is it, it more than rings a bell, as Barry said, the words Ahuva and Snua are the words applied to Rachel and Leah, the beloved and it doesn't mean hated the way Snua doesn't mean the hated the way like ah, I hate you, but the the unbeloved wife, the beloved and the unbeloved wife, um, and this is exactly what happens. Reuven is the firstborn, and yet Joseph is the one given the double portion, and so it's it's impossible to read this, you know, not putting these two things together. And you can go one of a number of ways. I mean, you can say that perhaps Devarim seeing all the bad stuff that happened with Jacob legislates a different path. Or I think a little bit more likely, the law as expressed in Devarim in, in Parshat Kitetse this week is like the norm. And somehow the story of Jacob is to say that, yeah, norms are good like 99% of the time, but there are certain exceptional moments, maybe even redemptive moments, and characters like Joseph or characters like Jacob um, whose behavior actually has to, to be antinomian and violate the norm. Um, so I don't think there's any way to, to read the story, the, the, the story that, that it does not affirm that Joseph deserves, that his two sons get elevated to tribe level, that therefore making him the true, the true Bechor, the Bechor Shor, the, the firstborn of the ox. Um, and I don't think there's any way to read this passage without thinking, yeah, that's a bad way to go. So, how do you put them together? Is the law a comment on, on the story? Is the story's power that it is a deviation from the law? So what's interesting here is to think about Joseph for a moment. So his two sons are Menashe and Ephraim, and the favorite son there is Ephraim, the younger son. And Ephraim becomes associated with the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom, though, is associated with Yehuda, with Judah, who is the son of the unbeloved wife. And Judah is the dominant son in Jewish history over Ephraim. So that even in history, there is a kind of validation to the law, because even though Judah is not the firstborn, we can say that the top three sons discredited themselves with some of their activities. Um, Ruvain with his uh, father's concubine and Shimon and Levi with the story of Shechem and Chamor. And Yehuda is left standing as the oldest son of the wife, the first wife, and therefore receives the the patrimony of the people. So, how would you then fit in the next passage, which is Ben Sorero Moreh, the rebellious child? The Torah says, 
if there, if a man has a wayward and defiant son, sorer umore, who does not heed his father or mother and does not obey them even after they discipline him. So the question then is, is this law? Is this, is this speaking to a reality? Or as we would like to say, are we given here a snapshot of, of a society? Or uh, would we ask it, that this is trying to comment on something? Is it giving a comment on, on, on anything? Is it, you, yeah. you know, and of course, you know, it, uh, if you recall, what's the, the rabbinic debate? You know, did, did this ever exist? Jeremy, want to weigh in on the Yeah, so first I want to um, bring in a, a wonderful midrash that reads these three things in a little bit of a sequence. If you engage in this battlefield rape, even, even under the, the uh, limiting conditions that are given, you will end up wrecking your family life um, and you will have strife between you and your wife and, and, and you will your be wife. prompted to... Uh, prompted to discriminate against her child economically. And then the, in reaction, that child will become rebellious and, and incorrigible. And so it, it's that, that, that Midrash, which, you know, never heard of feminism or never heard of Dr. Spock and child raising and whatever, um, uh, recognize that, that the, th the three things that are being restrained in these mitzvot um, are are all a product of like you know a life gone wrong. So so it's not like these are the wonderful mitzvot. You know Torah mitzvot bara meirat of the divine the divine uh, command. You know and and gladdens the heart and enlightens the eyes. These are these are statements of how to re restrict yourself from going off the track and having your life as a mess. Um, the uh, but I think that the Ben Sorer Moreh, as as you said, the rabbis and the Talmud argue. That uh, never existed. Um, I, I, another person in that same debate, if I remember right, it's Rabbi Yehuda ben Bateri says, not only did he exist, I stood on his grave. Um, but uh, the the claim that this never existed says it's a, it's an allegory. It's not it's not true. It is it is brought in the Torah to sharpen our study skills, to recognize that to recognize the way that the Torah is telling us between the lines that this is impracticable and not, you know, they, they say, for example, that the, the parents are supposed to come and say, uh, they, 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 they take him by the hand. Aha, they both have to have, they both have to have hands. And he doesn't listen to our voice. Aha, their voice has to be similar. Um, the, the rabbis read out that the Torah between the lines sneakily is telling us this is, this is not to be put in practice. But if we read past that, that, that rabbinic interpretation, I think that this too is a reform. You have to think um, it, oftentimes, and I think these are good examples of the Torah's laws, not as the picture of the perfect society, but the restraint on, on humans' worst impulses. I think that, that a case like this is that sometimes parents just lose it. They give up and they, they could react to their children with violence, God forbid. So if you get a case like this and the parents have given up and they think that their kid is just impossible, what do you have to do? Aha, you are not permitted to take this into your own hands. You have to bring this to the elders of the town to turn what might be a private family disaster into a public judicial procedure in which you got a third party who might be able to cool things off. So to me, the whole thing is about bringing this incorrigible child to the attention of the city institution and, and, and thereby restraining a, a parent's 
you know, right or capability or power to just just abuse that child. So I want to just list, uh, comment on the word zikne iro, the elders of the town, because it, while, while yes, they certainly could be seen as authoritative figures and even with some legal authority, the legal the term, precise term for, for a, you know, a judge is a shofet. So there's something else going on here with the zikne iro. And, and here I want to give a slightly um, more contemporary reading, which is that these people are just beside themselves. They don't know what to do with this child. And, and who do they go to? They, they, need, they need help. They go to people who are wise, Zikne Iro, the elders of the town, who we assume are, are people who are mentor or experienced or know something about life and can offer some wisdom. Um, and, and then they make the claim, they make the charge, our child is rebellious, and he doesn't listen to us, so he's a glutton. So the Zikinim have to hear this, this, this charge. Now, I, I, the, the next word is urgamuhu, they stone him. But, but you know, in music, you have to read the, the rests. You have to read the pauses, okay? And I'd like to drive a big truck between these two verses and say, look, be, before you stone him, you, you, you got to work this out, right? You know, it should never get to this point where you take a child out and, and do this. So the elders become in loco parentis. They, they stand in, in, in terms of, you know, in the place of the parents and they help remediate the situation. Look, today, the contemporary example is, who do you go to? You go to a therapist, you go to, you go to a, family, a family therapist, a family counselor, and you work out the problem because God forbid you should ever get to this. So I'm led to believe that this is more a theoretical case than an actual case, Barry. Okay, I would have to disagree quite quite strongly with that approach. I think that we always have to ask ourselves what the problem is that the law is coming to solve. And the problem is not juvenile delinquency, as we often think, but it's more along the lines of what Jeremy suggested, is that it's a restraint on parental activity. And here it's important to recognize that the bottom line here is, is the child is executed. And, but he's not executed by the parents, he's executed by the town, by the elders. And so from the child's point of view, there's no difference in who executes them, but it makes a big difference to the community. And what's striking here is that the parents don't seem to be involved in the execution. Elsewhere in Devarim, it says that the witnesses have to actually throw the first stone in the stoning. They're not allowed to withdraw from the procedure. And then the other connection I would make is with the end of the Parsha, when we get to the story of Amalek, one of the readings of the story, which is difficult, I think we talked about it last year as well, is that evil exists and it has to be extirpated. It has to be removed. In the phrase of the Torah, uviarta bara, uh, uviarta you have to uproot the evil from your midst. And we shouldn't think, in my opinion, at least to disagree with you a little bit, Elliot, that these are theoretical, but it's a problem that all societies had to face. I can't, I can't bring myself to imagine a situation where parents would actually charge their children and then, and then face the execution of their child. I, th I think that that's beyond even a, a sensibility of an ancient individual. Um, and, and, and therefore, I, 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 you know, I don't know if this, this is a kind of way out, but, but I would offer the following, that this is a theoretical violation of the fifth commandment along the lines of the, the biblical scholar, David Noel Friedman, 
who says, look, you know, we find these, these very, very um, awkward stories in, in the first five books of the Torah uh, in, in, from Shemot to, to violations of the Ten Commandments. The golden calf is a violation of commandments one and two. The, the blasphemer in Leviticus is a violation of commandment three. The person gathering wood on Shabbat is a violation of commandment four. And along that pattern, you would expect to have a violation of commandment five. But the Torah can't conceive and present an actual case of someone being this defiant to their parents. So they create a theoretical case. And here in the theoretical case, you, you, yes, you theoretically execute, but it lo hayava lo nivra. Did you know what, did you know what Elliot? I, I first of all, I, I also think that there is great power in the lo hayava lo nivra situation. But I just want to say that there are um, cases like you know you, you you can't imagine you can't uh, imagine that that a parent would do such a thing, and when and when chasva an abusive parent kills a child, you know, it's like they're, they're, they're insane, they're wicked. Um, but we can think of other societies, including um, some of our neighbors, uh, where honor killings, like it's, it's usually not because a young boy is a glutton and a drunkard, but maybe because a young girl has behaved sexually in ways that her family can't deal with that do have you know, ostensibly, you know, but you know, um, uh, that, that, and I actually know somebody who witnessed an honor killing. Um, uh, but, but are you saying that the Torah then validates this? The Torah can, not, I mean, well, okay, Elliot, you have to keep in mind, there is a case in the Tanakh, not in the Torah, of a violation of Kibbut Avaim. And it would be interesting if Friedman mentioned this, and that's the case of Avshalom who rebels against his son, and in fact, father, father. Uh, right, who rebels against his father, King David, and mounts a revolution, a rebellion, and is killed. Not by David, that would support your case, as you can't imagine a parent killing a son, but by Yoab, who- That's the point, I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt here, but how does David respond to it? You have a whole, you know, which which well, I think author responded better by using the title for his greatest book. Exactly. No, no, absolutely. Uh, that's that's why David. Is, that's why David is so great in that passage because he is overcome with emotion, but he does not fail to go to war with that son, knowing that this would be, you know, a very likely outcome. So I, I, I actually, I, I actually think that we can't. You know, if what we're trying to do, like, this is always the, the question and how we interpret passages like this, um, we interpret them on historical levels and we, we give some answer that reads like that was then and this is now and it's a different kind of culture and different kind of society. And we, we give like religious answers that we are studying the Torah, which is, which is always meaningful and always speaking to us. And so we, we will say, you know, on, on that level, um, we cannot imagine how the how the the Torah would affirm that this is ever a reasonable way for a parent to act, and on the that was then, this is now level. I think we do have to say that plenty of societies think that certain violations are so horrible that that people deserve to die. And I, I, I it's, it's a little hard for me not to think, given that those things still exist, and that given that the Torah has lots of death penalties for. Being mekoshechetzi, you know, being gathering sticks um, on Shabbat, that 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 we are, we can be totally confident that the Torah doesn't doesn't think 
that this is sometimes an appropriate response. Okay, so we're going to leave that. Then go to go to. I mean, I'm still still emotionally involved. In <laughs> we're all parents, and I think you know. We, we, we can't imagine any situation. We have the most perfect children, all of us. So here, just one last word, Elliot, that it is hard to imagine, but as Jeremy reminded us, the last word in the passage in Masacha Sanhedrin is not lo hayavalo yeah. It was the person saying I was on the grave. I stood on the grave of this guy. And there are two other events that the rabbis of the Talmud have difficulty imagining, and they each end with the same witness to its facticity. And sometimes you have to give the last word some credence. Okay. I, 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 I'm, gonna, I'm gonna underline your last word on that thing. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna contest it, but I wanna go on to another topic, which is, I mean, you know, we'll pick any one of the 74 and one of them is all, you know, the, one of the most often quoted is the Shiloh HaKan. What do you do if along the road you chance upon a bird's nest and uh, you have to send the, with fledglings or eggs, and the mother is sitting over the fledgling on the eggs, do not take the mother together with her young. So you have to send the mother before you take the eggs. So the question then is really not a question of, did this actually happen and what do you actually do, which of course we can deal with, but is, so what is the purpose of mitzvot? There's, it's a philosophical debate. So Jeremy, weigh in on this, you know, mitzvot are for, end the sentence. Um. Well, uh, I'm not sure that I have a, an answer for all mitzvot, um, but you know, so, some of them are clearly like some mitzvot are clearly about responding to um, a social need. But I would say that mitzvot are ultimately about refining the human religious personality or the Jewish human religious personality, uh, and. Uh, you know, there's a famous midrash we talked about a little bit before the uh, before the we started recording. Uh, listen, what does God care? This is how the midrash goes. What does God care if you slaughter an animal across the throat, which is the halachic correct answer, or with a chop at the back of the head, which is forbidden? Uh, what difference does it make? Animal dies, you get hamburger. Um, uh, el, there's no no practical difference, but God gave them. To refine human beings, to, to not let us do whatever it is that we want, but to direct our actions and inculcate a sense of worship, um, intentionality, consciousness, and other kinds of virtues like generosity and, and chesed and kindness. So I would say that in general, the mitzvot are a, uh, uh, an attempt by this Jewish religious tradition to, to train us in behaviors which will bring forth our best best virtues and, and refine us as people, help us be better people, and in turn, make a better world. Barry, any other? Yeah, what I would add here is that the purpose of the mitzvot is to make us more purposeful. We're supposed to think before we act. It's very tempting. You see the mother bird and the eggs to shoo away the mother, or to grab the eggs and have lunch. But the Torah is saying that you can't do that. And I think the answer perhaps is found in some way in the third paragraph of the Shema, that the mitzvot are designed to train us not to follow the inclinations of our eyes and our heart, but to think about what we're doing before we do it. 
And that is going to lift us spiritually. But in this question, Elliot, um, do you, with, I think, I said what I said about, and Barry said something similar about the general way which meets vote leave us different. But sometimes there are meets vote which are clearly, you know, uh, teleological. They want to create some situation on the ground. So I, I, in your question about the, the, the Shilua Hakan, the setting forth of the mother bird, are, are, you, are you sort of giving us two choices? It's to awaken our compassion, or it is, it's, it's a good animal husbandry that if you take, take the mother and the eggs, you're killing, you're killing off the species in a, in a way that's bad for the species. So, so I don't think it has to do with animal husbandry. I, I think it has to do with the way we interact, uh, interact with, with animals, with nature. I do think, I do agree, yes, of course, the ultimate end is to litzaref et adam, to, to refine the human character. Um, and, and there is, I think, an element of us that relates to creatures as creatures. You know, the, I mean, if you've ever had the experience of walking on a path and seeing uh, Canadian geese, okay, with their young in the park, which they do around me, and you kind of stand near the the the, the little the little geese the the goslings. Uh, the, the mothers go crazy. They they you you see what maternal rage is all about next to these animals, and so you are you are definitely causing them distress. There's it's 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 just part of nature, and so the, the, there is part of the Torah that responds to a deep understanding of of nature nature in general that that all nature responds to the the presence of their young with with zeal with zealous protective capacity that's what a mother does the mother is is fierce fiercely protective of her young this is biological this is innate this is instinctive and so we we understand that on on the deepest of, of levels i think that that yes uh, you know, I, 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 we can have it both ways here. We can say the mitzvot are to refine us and the mitzvot are to actually to, to be compassionate. I think we can have it both ways. All right, before we, we, we we're, all, we're running out of time here. I want to get your reactions, you know, free associate, please. Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, Edomites, and Amalekites. Uh, who wants to take Ammonites and Moabites for 20? <laughs> Barry, so, tell us. Yeah. Here, what's interesting is you're not allowed to marry a Moabite or an Ammonite. Um, and what the two have in common is they are the descendants of Lot. They are not actually biological descendants of Abraham. They're the descendants of one of Abraham's brothers. And they are, in a word, I guess, uh, to borrow from a more modern language, traif. They are outside of the community. The other people can be brought into the community after a few generations. Um, except for the Amalekites, they are, I guess we would say Trafal Gamre, they are so trafe that they have to be destroyed. Um, but it does pose some interesting questions for who we want to, who can actually enter our community and who cannot. And the modern take on this, of course, is that there are no descendants of these people today so everyone can be welcomed into the Jewish community. But clearly it was, there was some kind of test for our biblical ancestors because they did not accept everyone. But there's one interesting anecdote to share when um, 
the Israeli, the modern Israelis and the Egyptians were negotiating the Camp David Accords. They were in Egypt during Passover, and the protocol was that the Israelis had to host the Egyptians for a seder. And they were a little nervous because, as we recall, the Egyptians don't come off so well in the Haggadah. But the Egyptians were not concerned because they did not see themselves as the descendants of those Egyptians. So lots of people have ideas of where they come from that don't always coincide with where we think they come from. You know, I, so an Egyptian person once told me, having who was actually at a Seder of mine, um, uh, that in Egyptian slang, pharaoh is the word for tyrant. So she could totally relate to uh, the story about the badness of pharaoh. Uh, they called, and this was before the Arab Spring, she said, yeah, we call Hosni Mubarak the, the, the pharaoh. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, as, as we said before we started recording, the, the, last, the last lap on this, uh, Ellie, you should, you should say the last lap on the Moab. So, so as we're reflecting on it, I'm thinking, okay, so, so, you know, the most prominent Moabite that we know of is Ruth. Ruth marries Boaz. She enters into solidarity with the, the Jewish people and then eventually becomes the grand, great-grandmother of King David. You can't get more inside than that. And that, that's a kind of biblical answer to, to the ban against Moabites and Ammonites. I can't think of an Egyptian who enters into the, 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 the people other than Hagar. Hagar, the, you know, which is uh, uh, you know, a quasi-matriarchal person in the life of uh, Ishmael, certainly, but, but she has a place within the tradition. So there is a marriage of an Egyptian uh, in, in the Bible. We don't have... I, 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 Solomon I, marries an Egyptian. One of his wives is... Solomon, a, do we have any marriages the, the to and the, any, Edom, any Edomite wives? Well, the, the, first of all, um, the, uh, the, um, also the... the uh, isn't the blasphemer... His father is Ishmi is Ishmi There you go. Three. There you go. Um, okay. So, yeah. so and, we have and, a, uh, a Mitri and we we I, there must be some we're gonna 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 look it up. This must yeah. be some Edomian yeah. around Edomite, okay? But we don't 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 have any Amalekites. There's no there are no Amalekite women. So that so here's my little Well there, we we actually have uh, the armor bearer of Shaul. When Shaul falls on his sword, is is a Maliki, and David kills him for for even facilitating the suicide of of Shaul. There you go. So that kind of proves the point, which is which is for for we can we can forgive the Moabites and and create a, a an archetype figure of kindness because the Moabites and the Ammonites weren't kind to Israel as they were going through the desert through wandering through the wilderness. But but Ruth becomes like the, the kindest person ever. We can you know find our ways with the Mitzrim because you know after all the, you know the the average Egyptian was was probably enslaved also. But the Amalekites, but, but, the but this is, forget it. We have no place yeah, for the they're, they're bad. The but, but actually, I want to say I want to say about about the Egyptians. The Torah actually gives a slightly different answer than okay. than what you just said. Which probably was true, also that that the average Egyptian uh, subject was was had nothing to do with Pharaoh's oppression. But um, the Torah actually says, "Lotita ev mitri ki ger hayita be'artso," because you were a, you were a stranger in his land. Now, I think what that means is, 
Yeah, it ended up really bad, but there was a time when Egypt was your rescue place. Exactly. Right. Um, and and so you were invited there, right? You were invited there. You were in a terrible crisis. You were in a terrible crisis. You were starving to death, and the Egyptians helped you out. So I, I think that that means something like, as crazy as this is, you know, you never, never forget when somebody does you a kindness, even if they later do something bad. It's, it's almost like, you know, it was as if, if, if somebody were to say to you today, well, you know, lots of Jews prospered in Germany. Let's, let's, let's think wonderful things about the Germans because lots, German, lots of Jews prospered there. Yeah, well, it ended up really badly. But, you know, the Torah seems to be saying that you should relate to the Egyptians as the people who helped you in the famine, not the people who enslaved you later. Right. And look, you know, even on that, we all know of, of Jews who married Germans because uh, their kindness. I, I, I have many stories of, of people who married their, their Gentile rescuers, you know, uh, which will take us down a different path. But anyway, so, so you know, th- this, this idea that there are boundaries and that the boundaries themselves, you know, within the Bible itself are, 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 are somewhat uh, fluid, shall we say. Anyway, we, we've reached the end of the, our time. And you could see, you know, for, for everyone watching and listening, how, how, how exciting it is, how great it is, how wonderful it is to be able to, to, to discuss these things. There's 74 meets fought in this Parsha. Each one has a story behind them and each one gives up a rise to a set of debates. We want to, first of all, say to our friends at Machana Ramad, we hope you had a wonderful summer. Thank you for hosting our show all summer. This is going to be broadcast after the, you all are back. And to our friends and listeners in our communities, we want to say thank you for watching and listening. We hope to join you again. You join us again on another edition of Park Star. And we'll say,